Psalm 135, verses five, uh, five and following, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, right? Whatever the Lord pleases, that he does. Okay, now, so let me, let me say it this way. According to the Bible, God is good, loving, and merciful. Okay, you with me so far? God hates evil. Every page of sacred scripture teaches us that God hates evil. The Bible also claims that God is all-powerful. He's able to do whatever he pleases, and that means that, that, that God exercises total sovereignty. Here's the problem. According to the Bible, God is all good, all powerful, and does whatever he pleases, yet there is evil and suffering in this world. How can, how can both of those things be true? Do you feel the weight of the problem? And so what we're gonna try to do today, I know you guys have questions, I'm gonna give you an opportunity, just bear with me, let me get through a few things first. So, so let's get a little more specific and this is an adult Sunday school class today with like a capital A. I mean, I'm gonna share some passages um, and it's not gonna be easy for us to talk about, okay? So, because, because the more I've thought about this, especially this week, I've just thought, sometimes, at least I'm speaking for myself, I'm naive to the depth of evil and suffering in this world. And so we need to be clear-eyed and we need to see realities for what they are as we're, as we're wrestling with these really honest questions. So this is the classic, uh, and I'm just gonna, we're just gonna talk about it. Many of you have heard of Auschwitz, it was a Nazi concentration and extermination camp in occupied Poland. Of the 1.3 million people who were interned there, who were imprisoned there, 1.1 million were murdered. A majority were murdered in gas chambers. Others were murdered by starvation, disease, execution, beatings, or medical experiments. And those murdered include men, women, and children. And so again, here's the question. If God is good, all-powerful, and totally sovereign, how could he not act to prevent it? And what I want to do in our time together today is talk about various approaches to answering that question. Okay, we won't talk about them all, but I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about three. Various approaches to answering this question. So if God is good, all-powerful, and totally sovereign, how could he not act to prevent suffering? Well, one approach that has been taken is to say that God is not all-powerful. God is not all-powerful. Now, this approach has been around for a while, but was popularized in our culture uh, it, with the uh, 1981 publication of a book, you may have heard of it, you may have read it, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. 
when bad things happen to good people. 1981 release. I believe to date it has sold around four million copies. It's a lot of copies. And here's what you need to know about this book and about this man. This was not an academic exercise for Rabbi Kushner. This was not some intellectual game. His son, when he was, I think, three, very young, was diagnosed with a degenerative disease, this aging disease, and the prognosis was he would die probably in his early teens. And in fact, his son did die, I, I think at the age of 14, his son Aaron died at the age of 14. And so when we consider Rabbi Kushner's answer to this question, even though I disagree with his answer, I want our interaction with his answer to be respectful. This was not a game for Rabbi Kushner. Kushner's answer can be summarized this way. Like I said, God is not all powerful, but Kushner, rabbi, he's a rabbi. And he says, God does not have the power to fix things. That's why there's evil and suffering in the world. He ultimately doesn't have the power to fix things. And what's uniquely helpful uh, about the fact that God exists is that he is a friend who feels with us, who is compassionate with us, and who can comfort us. Kushner appeals to the Bible for this response. In fact, he appeals to, to Job 40, chapters 40 and 41, and we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at some passages from Job in future weeks. But it's a rather, I'm gonna say, odd interpretation. If you remember uh, chapters 40 and 41 of, of, of the book of Job, you know, God is saying to Job, where were you when I created the world? Right, remember that? Where were you, you know? And he, he, he talks about various aspects of creation. And the implication, I think for, for most Bible scholars, is that God is totally sovereign over his creation. Rabbi Kushner's interpretation is basically that God was telling Job that he has a tough time running the world, and so he can't always keep bad things from happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good question. Yeah. It. So. So it seems like. I, I mean, the really the bigger question, Kathy, is how, how does he reconcile his conclusion really with what the Bible says about who God is? And and I mean that that is the question. And. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and someday he will stand before God, and God is going to ask him, boy, look at all these people who led down around the wrong road. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, right. And so, and so again, we're, we're trying to respectfully think about his answer from a biblical perspective and does it line up with what the Bible says about who God is and what, and what he's like. Um, here's his kind of his bottom line. I know you've got some comments and questions. Just hang with me here. His bottom line is this, to try to explain the Holocaust or any suffering as God's will is to side with the executioner rather than with his victim and to claim that God does the same, okay? So I saw a couple of hands, Russ, and then Emma. So I believe that he's not a Christian, I he's a Jewish rabbi. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the, the, the summary of that is Krishna doesn't have the, let's call it the advantage of seeing God in the flesh and how he enters into suffering. And, and we're going to talk about that. Yep, absolutely. Emma? I think it's very interesting, like, you know, Satan is trying all in his power to harm us. But yet in the book of Job, he had to actually ask God, the very person he hates the most, for permission. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that... Yeah. Even like it says in the Bible, even the demons will flee at the name. You know, when you say the name Jesus Christ, even the demons will be in fear. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that you know Satan has all this quote, power over the world, but yet in Job he actually had to ask God for permission. I bet that yes. was excruciatingly frustrating for him to do. Yeah, and and you've both pointed that out, and and that would be a great question for Rabbi Kushner is, you know, how do, how does that fit in with his interpretation? But let me let me let me turn us a little bit because. Some, you know, Christians would respond uh, like this. Well, you know, the book title is when, when bad things happen to good people. And some Christians would say, well, really the question is, you know, why do good things happen to bad people? Right? As if that glib response, you know, answers that question. It's... I mean, it's a clever response and there's truth. You know, why do good things happen to bad people? Um, there's, there's an element of biblical truth there, but I don't think that kind of response is ultimately helpful because look, we're all sinners here in this room, right? I mean, is that, is that fairly true? Yeah, and, and suffering is not equally, you know, distributed. Like there's... There's greater and lesser sinners, I guess we could say, and there's greater and lesser suffering. I just don't think that's a, that's a response that really ultimately helps us. Um, yeah, Willie. We have to go back to God's infinity. If God is infinitely wise, we might not understand why he allows something. The, way, the same way that we might have with our kids told him, now do this. Maybe you don't understand it. Just yeah. because dad or mom tells you, do it. Yeah. And then we expect him to do it. Well, if we really believe that God is infinitely wise and loving, then we have to say, 
this must be within his plan. There must be a good ending to it. There must be some reason that I can't understand. Yeah. So I should not condemn God. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And 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 as we move through this, we'll seek for answers. But I think, like I said, I mean, there's not this Loctite just nail nail down answer to the question of suffering. But there are there are some answers. I, I've got to move us on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've got to do this. We, I, I'm hoping to get to the end of this. Um, so let's say, uh, let me sum up. Rabbi Kushner's answers, answer says that God can comfort, but he's not powerful enough to fix all the problems in the world. And so ultimately, he's not responsible for suffering. I mean, that, that's, that's the bottom line. Um, and I was going to ask you the question, how does Rabbi Kushner's explanation of God's relationship to suffering compare with the Bibles? And, and you've already interacted like with Job, you know, Job one. Um, and so let's, uh, let me do this. Here's, here's how one, um, here's how one author kind of summarized Kushner's uh, book. Kushner offered up a God who could create a universe but has no power to alter it after the fact other than to, to provide strength, hope, and courage in times of need. So um, that's, that's kind of the bottom line. So, so one way to approach the question that we're asking is to say that God is not powerful. This next one's a little, we'll, we'll go more quickly through this. Another way to answer the question is to say that God is not good. You know, and, and again, the question is, um, you know, if God is good, if he's all powerful, if he's totally sovereign, then why, why doesn't he do something about the suffering in the world? And, and the second way to answer that question, possible way, is to say that God is not good. This approach has been around for a while as well. In fact, the second century Gnostics, they developed this idea that the creator God is evil, but the God of redemption and salvation is good. Okay? So that was their approach to trying to answer this question. God is not good. They said God the creator is different from God the redeemer. God the creator is evil. God the redeemer is good. And, and yet I read from Psalm 100. That Psalm says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I think if we think about God's word, that solution doesn't, it's untenable. It doesn't hold biblical water, right? Okay, so we've looked at two possible answers to the question, if God is good, all powerful and totally sovereign, how could he not act to prevent evil and suffering? We said one answer is God is not powerful. A second answer is that God is not good. But neither of those align with what the Bible teaches about God. And let's look at a third possibility. 
A third way that's been attempted to answer this question is to say that suffering is not real. Suffering is not real. So this was the answer uh, that was given by some of you have heard of the Christian science movement, Christian scientists. So, um, yeah, Christian scientists, uh, that was um, that was founded by Mary Baker Eddy in the late 19th century. And oh, by the way, uh, Mary Baker Eddy herself suffered quite a bit physically. And I think part of this, part of her theology, if we can call it that, um, was in response to her own suffering. And um, she said this, sin, she said, the only reality of sin, sickness, or death is the awful fact that the unrealities seem real to human erring belief until God strips off their disguise. Okay, did you catch that? Like, what seems real, sin, suffering, death, what seems real to us is really, the, the, the problem is our own erring belief. Like, we believe that it is until God actually uh, until God changes that so that we can see that there really isn't sin, suffering, and death. Um, and I'm not trying to be flippant here at all. I really am not. I'm trying to engage respectfully. But the fact of the matter is, Christian scientists become sick and die. And the problem with that kind of theology is that those who suffer, you know, sickness... That, that thinking adds guilt, right? Shame, guilt, like I'm suffering because I just don't believe rightly enough. So it's a, it's a devastating and awful, um, you know, quote unquote, answer or solution. A similar, uh, a similar solution is found in Buddhism, if you're familiar with Buddhism. Um, Basically, uh, from, a, from a Buddhist perspective, they teach that, that, that suffering is nothing more than the gap between what I have and what I want. So really, it's a, suffering is, the, the fundamental problem is my desire. I desire to be free of pain and suffering. And so if I can eliminate desire, all desire, then I can eliminate pain and suffering. And oh, by the way, nirvana in, in the Buddhist construct, nirvana is the end of all suffering and it's really the extinction of all desire. Like that's, that's the journey that the Buddhist is going on, is to extinguish self and all desire, okay? And so when we reach nirvana, that's kind of the end of self, the end of desire, therefore the end of suffering, and one one Christian apologist observed this about Buddhistic um, teaching: it's like killing the patient to cure the disease. It's like killing the patient to cure the disease. So, from a biblical perspective, what's wrong with this supposed answer to the problem? Yeah, Alicia. Yeah. 
Mary Baker Eddy's idea isn't that different from, say, a Pentecostal position where if you believed God yeah. and you asked for healing, if you believed him, you would be healed. Yeah. So then the, the problem lies with the person not being healed. Yeah. Very, very good observation. Yeah. I, I thought about bringing that up and I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. The, the health and wealth, you know, prosperity gospel movement basically believes that God intends us to be healthy, wealthy now, you know, and, and therefore in its worst forms, therefore, if you're not healthy and wealthy, it's a lack of faith on your part. Yeah. 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 What? Right. So, so biblically, we could look at that. And what we would say is that the gospel does, does provide healing and, and wealth, if we can put it that way. Um, but it doesn't guarantee it or promise it in this life. But in the life to come, like all our suffering, our sin, we'll, we'll be healthy and wealthy if we want to, you know, frame it in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. Why do you think that's interesting? Well, just because if it's true that um, it's, it's the idea of faith, if I don't have enough faith, well then, if I have no faith at all, and Jesus still heal people, yeah, no yeah. faith at all, gotcha. turning to faith, gotcha. then that goes to prove, I mean, in my thinking, it's not just faith that will heal, because lots of people get healed, you don't have faith. I'm not saying a lot, but there are people who have been healed over the years that don't have faith. I heard a wonderful story I was thinking of gospel stories, and I'm, I'm struggling to come up with an answer. Well, I, you, know, you see Jesus, then when he came to where who he was, many fell away from the faith. Now, maybe none of those were ones that he had healed, but there are so many places in the Bible that says that he was there healing all day long. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so nowhere does it say that all of those people were healed. Continue okay. to misunderstanding the text, but when I read that and I hear a bunch fall away, I think all these people got healed, fell away, started yeah. to the Israelites in the desert, were given manna, but yet still walked away from the Lord. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, we, we could, we could potentially talk about that, but they did come to him for healing. Right. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that, that, that's a significant move. Like, this guy can heal. Right. I'm going to go to him and, and get healing. Yeah. But it's their choice so. to believe So let me do this. Let me, I'd love to hear from someone I haven't heard from yet. Um, maybe in the back there. Um, <laughs> let me ask this question. What, what this, this response here, what does the Bible say about suffering? What does the Bible say about us and suffering? Let's be more specific. You said we were going to suffer, and we would not be here without Okay. Okay. It says we're going to suffer. Okay. You all agree with that? Okay. And does it, does it seem to indicate that is, is suffering a fig newton of our imagination? Christ suffered. Christ suffered. Yeah. That's where we're going to go. 
suffering and we will be looking at that. I want to make this point as well that atheism does not provide an answer to that question, to the question of if God is, you know, good, all powerful, totally sovereign, then why doesn't he do something about it? Atheism does not provide an answer to the problem of evil and suffering in the world, okay? For example, there's a few different things that we could say about that. On an atheistic worldview, there is no objective standard of good and evil. And so how do you even, how do you even talk about something being you know, wrong, like really absolutely wrong? How do you evaluate the wrongness of an action or an experience? Certainly you could say, I don't like it, or maybe our culture doesn't like it. But I mean, our culture's changed a ton, right? Many of you are old enough to remember a time where there were a lot of things that are being done that our culture affirms today that 50 years ago, 40 years ago, our culture would say, man, that's wrong. So, so our preferences, our cultural convictions don't provide any objective standard of good and evil. And also, on an atheistic worldview, it doesn't really explain our sense that evil and suffering are really wrong. Like our instinctive response. Because on an atheistic worldview, if, if really we're, we evolve from the swamp gas and you know, survival of the fittest is just how things are, like, like suffering, evil, death, Hamas, bombing Israel. I mean, that's just how it is. Like how, there's no, there's no basis from which to even ask why, is I guess. Um, yeah, there's no objective standard for morality. It's just the way things are. And so it's really nonsensical to ask why is there suffering on an atheistic worldview. I, I, I gave you the quote from Richard Dawkins. You know, he, he would say, there's no good, there's no evil, there's no design. It's just, this world is just, it is what it is, period. And if that's really the case, and so that's what I mean when I say atheism does not provide an answer. And one book that speaks to the awful evil that exists in our world is, have you guys heard of a guy named Elie Wiesel? I think that's how you say it. Wiesel, yeah. So Elie um, was born in Romania and during World War II was in prison, was interned in both Auschwitz and Buchenwald uh, concentration camps. And his description of what he saw was, is truly, truly shocking. And so I'm gonna, we're gonna read this quote and I just want, want you to prepare yourself it's not easy reading. But here's the thing. 
Ellie describes what he saw and what he saw was so evil and shocking that he said it killed his faith. But, but, but the problem is, and again, I say this respectfully, the problem is if there is no God where he wound up, there really is no ground for, for calling what he saw wrong or evil. That, that's what I want you to see. So here's the quote. Never shall I forget that night. Hence the title of the book. The book is called Night. The first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself, never. Wiesel was 15 years old at the time, and later, after seeing a child hanged slowly, he heard someone in the camp say, where is God now? And Wiesel said that in his, in his heart, he responded, I heard a voice within me answer, where is he? Where is he? Here he is. He is hanged here on that gallows. I mean, these are unspeakable things, but we have to face, we have to face it as we wrestle with, with these questions. But like I said, part of my reason for pointing this out is he sees evil, he saw evil so starkly and clearly. But his conclusion that God doesn't exist doesn't really allow him to even speak of evil in that way. Because if there is no God, there's no basis for truly judging evil. We could say it's behavior that he dislikes. Like, I don't like that. But I can't, I don't have the capability of really speaking of absolute, ultimate evil. And um, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush through this because I want to get to kind of something. I, I want to end us in a certain place. Apart from a divinely ordered morality, the word evil really doesn't have any real meaning. Because, because to say something's evil requires a standard of goodness. Okay, does that make sense? And, and so that's what we're trying to say is that even though even though answering the question as we framed it today and wrestling with how could God not prevent or interact evil and suffering, what I'm trying to tell you is, you know, the alternatives to answering those, that, that question just don't work. They don't work biblically. And atheism doesn't provide a solution to the problem of evil. It just doesn't. It's only in a world where God exists can we meaningfully ask, why is there suffering? 
And we're gonna continue to wrestle with that uh, in the weeks that follow, okay? And here's the other thing. Others have suffered similarly to Ellie Wiesel and have actually, have actually um, turned to God in their suffering. You remember Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy? They were arrested and imprisoned at Ravens, Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. And, and through Betsy and Corey's example, their, their love, their, I mean, just their example of walking through suffering. So through their example and their teaching, many of their fellow prisoners converted to Christianity. And before she died at Ravensbrook, Betsy told Corey, just before she died, this quote, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And she could say that because the triune God took on flesh and stepped into our suffering and death, even to death on a cross. And Betsy, Corey, and many others bowed to the sovereignty of God and clung to God's suffering son as their only answer. Others have observed this, have said this, is it not a sad irony that Elie Wiesel thought that he saw God hanging on a gallows, but he has failed to look at the God who did indeed hang on a gallows for our sake. Jesus suffered and died for us. And here's the thing. If we think of the cross as merely Jesus's death, we've really missed much of what the cross is. His death is not merely a death. Crucifixion was designed to maximize suffering, degradation, and shame. Jesus entered into our suffering world and he can relate to Auschwitz and Buchenwald. One author says this, if Jesus' demise is construed merely as death, even as painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. It was designed to shame, humiliate, degrade. Degradation was the whole point. Executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. Jesus' death on the cross is not merely death. As you hear this description of crucifixion, it brings home the fact that Betsy Ten Boom could say, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. I'm going to quote from an unlikely source. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to quote from PBS, our public broadcasting system. In their 1981 uh, television series, The Christians, they said this about Christianity. Christianity is the only major re religion 
to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. That's a pretty great summary. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God in our place. God suffers for us and he suffers with us. And that doesn't completely answer the question. We're going to continue to we're going to continue to unpack this. Here's a question I wanted us to talk about, but maybe you can write it down and think about it yourself. Does a Christian have anything to say to Ellie Wiesel that would not sound trite in his ears? Does a Christian have anything to say to Ellie Wiesel that would not sound trite in his ears? I wish you'd wrestle with that. I need to pray for us, but next sessions, next week, our very own Dan King. Where's Dan? There he is. We ha- he's going to bring a needed interlude into our series. He's going to talk about suffering and lament, uh, turning to God with and in our suffering. And then the following week, we'll, we'll pick it up again, and we'll begin to unpack an answer to this question by exploring God's sovereignty. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say that God himself in the word says that my ways are not your ways. There's no way we can fully grasp and understand his love he had for us. Here he had his son hanging and they were separated and that was the greatest thing Jesus And yet out of all of that his ways are not our ways. His ways are not our ways. Amen. Nobody expected a crucified Messiah. Nobody in the history of the world has imagined the worship of a crucified man. His ways are not our ways, but they're beautiful. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we want to wrestle well with these issues. They are not merely intellectual for, for most of us here. And, and certainly one day, they won't be intellectual for all of us at some point in our lives. So, Father, would you help us wrestle well with these and help us wrestle with you with these important questions. Thank you for our time. We give thanks to our crucified King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being here.